This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. One of the advantages that we have in Iowa is that people get along well. And when we talk about community policing, that's really about the only kind of policing that we've ever known. Criminal convictions have broader consequences. Well, if you keep locking people up and throwing away the key and putting people in prison that don't need prison to pay for their mistakes, you're eventually going to run, or you're going to run out of money. And new legislation may change federal sentences. That it gave me encouragement that maybe we've been too harsh in the past. Reform of the criminal justice system, our topic again this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Last week on this program, we began a discussion on suggested reforms to our nation's criminal justice system. We continue with that topic this week. According to Iowa Uniform Crime Reports, minority youth made up just over a third of all juvenile arrests in Iowa in 2010, 34%. African-American youth comprise 23% of that total, or about a quarter of the whole. The percentage of arrests for African-American youth in our state for offenses on individuals was significantly higher than the rate for Caucasians. 23.5% for African-Americans compared with 15.3% for Caucasians. But the report also shows that Caucasian and Hispanics had a higher arrest percentage for drug offenses than other racial or ethnic groups. Now, this distinction between violent and nonviolent crime is important as we discuss the impact of criminal sentencing on racial groups overall. The Iowa Criminal Justice Summit was held on October 1st in Cedar Falls, focusing on proposed changes for nonviolent offenders. That same morning, a compromise bill was introduced in Washington to address part of the problem. We'll hear from U.S. Senator Charles Grassley, a supporter of that bill, later in this program. This is coming from somebody that's locked up a lot of people for drug possession, drug sales. I've put a lot of bad people in prison that did bad things. Tons of cocaine, millions in drug proceeds, uh, bad guys. Bernard Carrick is the former New York City Police Commissioner. He is co-founder of the American Coalition for Criminal Justice Reform. But the system today takes young, first-time, nonviolent offenders and we put them in federal prison for 10 years or 15 years. And I know there's people out there that say, well, you know, they deserve what they get. Okay, well, here's the way you should really be looking at it. If you take a young, nonviolent first-time offender that has a drug problem and you stick him in prison for 10 years, well, you've taken a nonviolent kid that's never had a problem with the law and you turn him into a complete monster. You turn him into a thug. He learns how to steal, cheat, lie, manipulate, con, gamble, and most importantly, he believes now, with his newfound education, that any verbal altercation he has ends with somebody getting cut or beat down, okay? He's now a convicted felon. He can't find a job. He's not going to get a job. Is that really what I want back in my community? No. What I would rather have, take that nonviolent first-time offender, put him in a drug court, stick him in a mandatory boot camp, get him rehabilitation, get him back on the street, get a job, and then dismiss his conviction and give him a real second chance to life? Because as it stands right now, he gets no second chances once he's a convicted felon. 
Once he's a convicted felon, he remains that way until the day he dies. And the collateral consequence of that conviction is life-altering, devastating, personally and professionally annihilating for him and his family. You may recall that Carrick himself is a convicted felon related to tax and false statement charges. Given that, I asked Carrick why you should take his views on the topic seriously. This isn't about redemption. This is about reality. In the history of our country, in the history of the United States, nobody with my background, my experience, or my successes in law enforcement, whether it was running the NYPD at 55,000 strong, whether it was getting the city through 9-11, whether it was running Rikers Island for six years and dramatically reducing violence, and, and as the, the press and media has called it, taming Rikers, nobody with that experience of success has ever been inside the federal prison system. No one. If you want to think of a unique, one-of-a-kind perspective, I've got it. So. I think uh, people understand that, they listen to it, they will get it, they will understand it, and I give them a perspective that nobody else has ever had. I think we're actually better off here than a lot of other jurisdictions. Roxanne Ryan is the Iowa Department of Public Safety Commissioner. One of the advantages that we have in Iowa is that people get along well. And when we talk about community policing, that's really about the only kind of policing that we've ever known because we really do focus on communities and uh, and I know in our department we look at issues from a statewide perspective and we look at some of the other states where they have one metropolitan area and then the rest is rural and I just don't think that's a healthy way to run a state and so when we're making decisions we want to make sure that, that we are providing good opportunities for people in all parts of the state and that we're not just focused on the, the central Iowa region, uh, but we, we want to be able to make sure that people in other communities around the state are going to have the same kinds of benefits that we see in Des Moines. And that's important because so many people in rural areas, or even in the other urban areas, feel that too much out-of-state government is Des Moines-centric and the Des Moines solution doesn't fit everywhere else. Uh, is there a sense that we're actually accomplishing the goal then of having different methods as necessary for the different problems with the different size populations and type of populations we have? I think we do and, and that I know that's important to Governor Branstead and he, he encourages all of the directors to think statewide and not just think about what happens in Des Moines. Uh, for us, it, it's a pretty easy thing to do. We're a statewide department. We have our people and quite a few of our people outside of Des Moines. So we have regular communication. We understand that things operate differently in different parts of the state. I had the same experience when I was in the Attorney General's office. We had lots of conversation about whether we should have district attorneys as opposed to county attorneys, and I was always opposed to district attorneys because I think each county needs to have its own prosecutor to make its the decisions about what's right in that particular county. You end up losing a lot by regionalizing things instead of really focusing on the local level. Crime is local. 
So our response to crime should be local. There's a bipartisan effort to do something, but they don't have a choice, especially in states. States live within the grounds of a budget. Well, if you keep locking people up and throwing away the key and putting people in prison that don't need prison to pay for their mistakes, you're eventually going to run out of money. We continue our discussion of criminal justice reform in Iowa by speaking with Lyle Muller, the executive director editor of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Lyle, Iowa Watch has done some reporting in the past on the opportunity gap. How does that relate to this topic of criminal justice? Some of the people that we interviewed for the project talked about factors such as poverty and education. And the report that we did, and this was a couple of years ago, but the data still are strong because they basically related what was happening from the 1960 census through the 2010 census, our most recent census. If you look at some of that data, you'll see some startling numbers. For example, poverty. Two out of five black Iowans are living in poverty. In 1970 and 1980, it was one of every five. So something is happening there. Another statistic that you can use to compare to that is white Iowans, whereas one in ten now live in poverty. Far different from two uh, in five, but one in ten live in poverty, and that compares to one in four living in poverty in 1960. So if you look at the curve that's occurring, the number of black Iowans in poverty is increasing as a percentage of black Iowans. The percentage of white Iowans in poverty is decreasing. And so much of what we have learned about this topic is that there are bad actors out there without question. But there are also those, the people we've talked to have said, who are committing nonviolent offenses and doing so because of what they perceive, rightly or wrongly, as a lack of opportunity with regard to socioeconomic and familial situations. And we've heard that, too, in the interviews that we've done, not only for this series, but when we've revisited the topic occasionally. And we haven't done it in depth as we did a few years ago, but we certainly still talk with people about this. The most common crime for young black Iowans is simple assault. And that's a real judgment call in some cases. In many cases, it isn't. Don't get me wrong. But in some cases, uh, it, it is something that uh, the black community says was misunderstood and called a simple assault when, in fact, nothing uh, happened along those lines. So those, those are the questions that come up. And it's real difficult. You have to uh, understand the perspective of all sides, not just the black community or the minority community. And also we've studied Latinos and how they're treated as well, but it's mostly blacks. But also police, as they come into a situation and try to figure out what to do, they're charged with keeping the peace. And so uh, we hear a lot of that as well uh, in our discussions with people. The city of Cedar Rapids is encouraging its police officers to engage in greater dialogue with churches and to engage in recruiting efforts with regard to those traditionally underrepresented minority groups because the racial makeup of the police department there, they say, is not the same as the racial makeup of the community. Is this part of the problem, just the mere lack of understanding culturally because of the dissimilar natures of the individuals who are interacting? Well, people with whom we've spoken have made that argument. Here's what we hear from folks in interviews is that If you 
want your police department to reflect your community. It ought to reflect your community and that a lack of black faces in that police force can be a, a problem. Uh, and so that's one issue. And then the other issue is just this understanding of cultural backgrounds. And so as much as we like to think of our country as a melding pot in Iowa as this place where life is good, and by the way it is, but there still is this cultural difference. And one of the biggest things that happens in in these uh, incidences where there are cultural differences is one side doesn't understand the other. There was a man in Cedar Rapids, Virgil Gooding. He's since passed away, but he was a therapist, and he's an African-American who would talk to me sometimes about the psyche of growing up as a black person and how difficult it is to understand the psychological thing that goes on there. And he was talking about the notion that you're always aware that someone is thinking about you in a, in a negative way, whether or not they are, at least culturally you feel that way. And then that directs your behavior from that point on. And, and the argument there was that that's a heck of a, a bad place to start from if it's a negative feeling. And uh, Virgil's gone now, so he's not able to speak about those types of things. But he was very eloquent in the Cedar Rapids community about making that point. Lyle Muller, Executive Director, Editor of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Coming up, we'll look at proposed federal legislation that would make some of the changes we've heard talked about today. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa State Bar Association. The Iowa State Bar Association provides Iowans with access to legal resources such as lawyer referral services and much more at www.iowafindalawyer.com. If you need an attorney, the ISBA can help. Visit iowafindalawyer.com today. Additional support comes from the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. This past Thursday, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee approved legislation out of committee that would change some of the sentences in the federal system for nonviolent crime. The Bipartisan Sentencing and Prison Reform Bill passed by a vote of 15 to 5. Senator Charles Grassley is chair of the Judiciary Committee and an author of the bill. We spoke just a few hours before the committee took up that bill this past Thursday. Well, it's a compromise between uh, what's, what's known as a smarter sentencing bill, which basically, just across the board, cut minimum mandatory sentences in half, like from 10 years down to 5 years, or from 15 years down to 7 half years. Then at the other end, you've got people in the Congress 
that for law enforcement reasons and hard on crime reasons, and I usually fall into that category of people that think we just ought to leave it alone, that has cut down on the crime murder rate in the last 25 years and a half, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I have seen states, uh, and remember, when we pass federal law, that's just for the 10% of the people that are imprisoned in federal prisons. And the other 90% are in the 50 state institutions. And uh, I've watched state legislators make some reforms, uh, both for prison and sentencing reform. And I was uh, uh, impacted by what I've seen going on in other states. And I thought it was time for us to do something, even if I'm strong on, I want to maintain mandatory uh, sentences. So we maintained them. But what we've done is we've basically given judges more discretion in sentencing and also for people that uh, that have uh, uh, lesser crime records or no crime record when they're sentenced for the first time, leniency based upon uh, the fact that uh, they, they aren't, haven't been involved in violent criminal activity. Now, that's on the sentencing end. By the way, we did increase uh, and set up some mandatory minimums for people involved in terrorism and people involved in domestic violence. Um, but basically, the bill gives judges more discretion in sentencing. Uh, and then we also have a prison reform uh, agenda as part of this bill. And the prison reform at the federal government is needed because if you get a mandatory sentence of 30 years, you serve the 30 years. Uh, this is meant to give people that want to uh, rehabilitate and uh, show that they uh, should be let out earlier an opportunity to gain points by, let's say, going to school, having work uh, 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 w work-related activity, uh, doing community service, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it gives an opportunity for people to shorten their prison time by good behavior. And, uh, and also, we would think that that would cut down on recidivism. This has had broad support, as you just noted. What was it that convinced you to believe these reforms were necessary? Two things. One, I saw the possibility of the smarter sentencing bill passing, cutting in half all these minimums, and I thought that was bad. Secondly, as I've observed, uh, what was going on in the states, and I guess I have uh, some confidence in what we call the political laboratories of our federal system, uh, states doing things 50 different ways, but enough states doing this with some success, particularly on prison reform, that it gave me encouragement that maybe we'd been too harsh in the past. Now, when I say we've been too harsh in the past, that kind of conflicts with what I just said about the 1980s uh, adopting a tough-on-crime with mandatory minimum sentences in the 1980s. 
it uh, cut our murder rate in half. So there's a lot of people living because of tough on crime. But maybe we uh, there's a compromise, and I think we found this compromise between uh, maintaining all mandatory minimums and uh, cutting all mandatory minimums across the board in half. And that's what this bill is all about. Now, I've heard some people complain that there's an immigration role that's in this bill. Some on the far right are saying they don't like, and it's tied to what they perceive as being soft with regard to immigration and deportation. Can you address that? Now, what they might be saying is we do have a lot of uh, undocumented uh, immigrants in prison because they committed crime. And I suppose that uh, they will be treated the same way other people are treated. But there's no section of this bill that speaks specifically to immigrants. It's kind of a a numerical thing that people could attach to it, that a certain number of people are going to be helped because they were undocumented workers. But uh, we're treating all criminals as criminals and all prisoners as prisoners. And they're all going to be uh, either... uh, uh, you know, when a judge looks at them uh, and, or when they build up these points in prison to get out, they're going, you aren't going to know the difference between an immigrant and a non-immigrant. Senator Charles Grassley speaking to me from his office in Washington this past Thursday morning, just before his Judiciary Committee approved for further Senate consideration the bipartisan federal sentencing and prison reform bill. And that brings to a close this week's program. Next week, we'll be just one year away from the 2016 election. And on this program, we'll hear what's on the mind of voters just three months from the Iowa caucuses. The mood of the electorate is our topic next week. In the meantime, you can connect with us online anytime. IowaWatch.org Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again. For a list of stations that carry the program and more, iowawatch.org. Follow us on Twitter at Iowa Watch and be sure to use the hashtag IAWatchConnection when commenting about the program. We're on Facebook too, facebook.com slash iowawatch. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.